Welcome, and thank you for listening. I'm John F. Simon, Jr., and I'm, I'm putting this out there for creative contemplatives, or call us introspective artists, anyone who really loves the connections between creativity and meditation. My passion, as you might know, is uh, drawing. I draw every day, and our community is called Drawing Your Own Path. So for my first effort in the audio realm, I decided to start with the here and now. I want to call attention to an ongoing project called the Art Monastery. So today I'm speaking with Betsy McCall, whose Art Monk retreats are happening this summer in Vermont. I want everyone to know about them, actual places uh, where people can meet and practice art and meditation. So I hope you'll check them out. So here is my first Strong Your Own Path interview. Hopefully there will be many more. Let me know what you think. Give me some feedback in the Drawing Your Own Path community on Facebook or Google Plus or emailing me at drawingyourownpath.com. Here it is, a really fun discussion with Art Monastery co-founder and Art Monk, Betsy McCall. We're here today with Betsy McCall. Thank you. It's so great to be here. So we're both moving in the direction of or completely involved in being creative contemplatives and somehow finding the crossover between uh, creative work and and introspection. First, let's let's first talk about um, your projects that you have going on, and then we'll go back and get a little background. How does that sound? Sounds great. So do you want to mm-hmm. give us a little rundown about uh, Art Monks? Yes, yeah. The Art Monastery is a... Uh, it's a, a nonprofit that I started along with another another uh, collaborator. We started it in late 2007, early 2008, and for the first many years of the project, it was located almost entirely in Italy. And basically, we were asking the question, what would happen if we took a bunch of contemporary probably mostly urban artists and put them in an ancient monastic structure, like in an actual monastery in some beautiful place in rural Italy. And then we applied monastic systems to creative process instead of religion. And yeah, I love it that you go, you, you don't just call it the art monks, but you go all the way back. Yeah. <laughs> back into the building and when well, you say monastic systems what do you mean uh i think the most the most maybe fundamental system is a rigorous daily schedule having a structure like a, a, a temporal structure um but also the the physical architecture and monastic systems like uh working with silence um community living, being in nature, growing your own food, those kinds of things. Right. And there's an emphasis on introspection. Yes. Yeah. The, um, well, with the, the art monastery has, uh, we have a, a, Venn, a Venn diagram of, of the three main pillars of the project, which are contemplation, creativity, and community. Oh, beautiful. Yeah. So we have different programs that explore different parts of those to different extents. Um, yeah. Can we go through? Can we talk about each one? Yeah, absolutely. What's the focus in contemplation, for instance? Is there a particular school of thought or does everybody pick their own? 
we have experimented with different things. We we are it is a secular organization, so we steer away from um identifying with any one particular religion. Although that said, the entire team of core of core art monks are all Buddhists. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so there's definitely a strong Buddhist influence. That's where most of our all of our training comes from. But the program that that goes the most deeply into contemplation is the Art Monk Retreat. So that's a one-week silent meditation retreat inspired by Vipassana retreats where we aim to explore the connection between contemplation and creativity and stillness and silence and, and how when you go really deeply into silence and stillness, you can kind of shine the light toward where is creativity coming from and and how can how can we open to it even more to to receive it really beautiful yeah love that we've been exploring this especially in the last year we've been really working with the idea of hosting the muse i like that yeah yeah which is yeah i think it's really it's maybe it's sort of ironic but i find it really empowering to think about creativity as something that's outside of myself mm-hmm. You think of it as like, okay, it's out there and we need to open to it to receive it. Then we release ourselves from the pressure of, I have to come up with a good idea. I made this terrible drawing. I have to play. (laughs) I love that. (laughs) It's really freeing and I think it it really helps get get things good. That that moves into (laughs) into the creativity part of the Venn diagram. Are there particular practices or does everybody bring their own practice as far as what the, I, I'm assuming when people go on to the um, art monk retreat that there's a, there's a, a lot of uh, individual time and people are doing creative work in that individual time. Do people t- choose what to do? Did, is there any collaboration? There, we've experimented with different things. Most of the work that people do on the art monk retreat is individual. We also do some collaboration, but we try to keep talking to a minimum. There does wind up being a little bit of right. verbal communication, but but we'll do things like um uh we'll do a kind of guided musical improvisation. Hmm. Um or sometimes we do movement improvisations, but most it's mostly focused on solo work. And is it is it um, visual artwork or do people do uh, music or dance? Yeah, people do all different things. Um, the art monastery in general has been um, most most focused on performance based work, partially because it lends itself so well to collaboration. Mm. Um, but the art monk retreats are really much more open, and I'm a visual artist, so I'm always looking for i'm always holding that flag <laughs> right right you, you bring your your materials there your paint yeah. or your paper or what have you yes exactly and then in the time we have you know we have a lot of time of in sitting meditation and walking meditation and then there's open swaths of time where people can go off and find a space to do whatever it is they they're going to do if it's movement or music or um visual art right okay so so then the community parts um let's say during the day as you just described is is there time when the when there's any talking and the group meets together for exchange 
We do have moments of, uh, we have optional art shares where you can share what you've been doing and you can invite people to offer feedback. We do that a few times throughout the retreat. Uh, sometimes we also have mindful conversations where we have moments where you're paired up with someone or you're in a small group and you have a, a question that you can discuss. We don't do that every time. It's a little bit following the um, vibe of the group each time on how yeah. much actual speaking. Is. I was going to say uh, it it fits the motif of a creative group to have sort of a fluid schedule. <laughs> yeah, well, many times you know we try to make. I always have this urge to 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 sort of create a structure that then we can repeat and do it, and it'll be you know figured out each time. <laughs> but it's it's. Doesn't work out. It's a sort of improvisation on the structure at some point, I suppose. Exactly. In fact, we've even called it improvipassana. I love that. (laughs) (laughs) Improvipassana. So so how how long does a retreat uh, typically last? The art monk retreats are are usually a week. Somewhere they vary between six and ten days. Okay. And there's, there's one coming up soon. There is. There is one June 11th to 17th, and then there's another one September 10th to 16th. And where are the locations of these? We are currently located, both of those will be in our Vermont location, which is Springfield, Vermont, southern Vermont. It's uh, a few hours from Boston and a few hours from New York and a few hours from Montreal. It's this beautiful six acre um little piece of land right on the Connecticut River. Mm. And it's a five bedroom farmhouse. So it's got this real homey feel. People have the option to stay in tents. We do all of our oh well almost all of our meditating sitting outside under this ancient pear tree looking at the river. Mm. Yeah, that's nice. And the, I suppose the meals, uh, uh, everyone chips in or everyone cooks together? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we have actually pretty much all of the our monastery programs. We have everyone cooks and cleans at least a little. Right. So um, we found that it's such, it's it changes everything when everybody's cooking and cleaning together, even if you're doing it in silence. Right. So. Yeah, every, exactly. Sounds like the monastery that. again. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly, yeah. And so what are the different locations that you've used besides the Vermont location? We've also, we've run most, the majority of the, our monk retreats we've run in California. We've done some in Southern California at the Integratron, this really interesting structure in the Mojave Desert. And we've done some in Bolinas just north of San Francisco, and uh, we've done some in Colorado, in Boulder, Colorado. And most of the time, pretty much all the time, actually, we've, we like to use these kind of alternative structures, like homes that have access to nature or these unusual places where people can be really feeling like they're living together as opposed to in a more of a more traditional retreat setting where everyone has their own room. Yeah. So beautiful. So um, if people are interested, they can go to um, a website. Is there an Art Monk website or a Facebook page? Yes. There's artmonastery.org. 
is the Art Monastery website, um, and you can find the the Art Monk retreats listed on the front page. So you can click from there. And then we're also on Facebook, facebook.com slash Art Monastery. You can find the listing for the Art Monk retreat event there. Yeah, I remember I, how excited I was when I was I was working with Buddhist geeks and I and I maybe Nathan or somebody joined and it and I found out there's an art monastery because I was trying to move my creative practice into more of a contemplative practice and I didn't realize that there would be others out there <laughs> seeing the same connections that I saw. So it's it's been very exciting to get to meet you and to learn about the art monastery for sure. I feel the same way. I feel both that it's surprising that there aren't more. Why aren't yeah. there hundreds of art monasteries out there? <laughs> and also it's so thrilling to meet kindred spirits. <laughs> it's true. And I do think that. And I think I think if we continue to practice uh, and explore it, a bit, uh, we'll bring others in because there are people that find out about it from, from the art side that want to know more about where their creative source is, as you pointed out. And there are a lot of people on the contemplative side who um, are looking for an alternate path to just sitting. You know, the, mm-hmm. the, the, the physical, that's what I find is the physical involvement helps a lot of people who are not so enamored of sort of just sitting still and there's just some kind of energy we should talk about that a little bit but i went let me do your background but i'd say that's just some kind of energy that needs to move you know that creative mm-hmm. energy just needs to move that sometimes doesn't move in sitting absolutely sometimes all stays in the head okay so let's go back uh, we mm-hmm. sort of covered the business basis but let's talk about betsy and where you came, <laughs> where you came from who you are what your interests were what your life was like Oh, great. Yeah. Well, I grew up in Buffalo, New York, and I went to Yale for undergrad and studied art. And then I moved out to San Francisco, where both of my sisters were living, and I was an animator. And then I started a knitting business. I've done just all different things. Right. <laughs> and Entrepreneurial um, things. Yeah, it's true. It's funny. I never really identified with that term, but now when I look back on my life, there's kind of no uh, no denying it. What, what was the knitting business? Uh, it was called Shiznits. <laughs> and I, uh, yeah, I started knitting. Actually, it was, I had been working for this wonderful dot com called thescience.com. And when I moved to California, I didn't have a job lined up and I was telling everyone, I want to find work where I draw every day hmm. and I'm, I'm learning science again. I, I missed, I had studied biology and loved it so much and was really missing that. And every time I said these, this, that I wanted to draw every day and be learning science, people would consistently say, what job is that? There's, there's no such job. And luckily, because I was in my early twenties, I was just, just, undistractable you know right, I just sure. said like no this is what will happen and wow the power of that kind of belief I kind <laughs> of wish I could get back to that kind exactly. of naivete. but I arrived in California and moved into a warehouse in Oakland with a bunch of crazy artists and one of them was about to move to New York and he was an animator at thescience.com, which was teaching, it was online, interactive, educational games. So he left and I basically replaced him at that company and it was wonderful. 
And then eventually it closed. And I was so sad when it closed because it really had felt like my dream job that I, I couldn't do anything. I couldn't draw. I, I couldn't apply for new jobs. I just, all I could do was knit. So I knit, knit, and knit, and knit. And I was making up patterns. And I wasn't at that time even all that experienced as a knitter, but I was just experimenting. And then a friend of mine was organizing a fundraiser to benefit a children's writing workshop. And he convinced me to uh, set up a table and sell the things that I had already knitted and then donate part of some portion of the proceeds to the fundraiser. And I was really resistant, but he, he pressed me to do it. And, um, and then that night was just unbelievable. It was incredibly well attended. And from the moment the doors opened, people came in and shop owners would come in and say, Oh, these are really interesting. Do you have a wholesale price sheet? Yeah. And I would say, oh, I'm all out of wholesale price sheets. <laughs> Mental note, make wholesale price sheets. Right. And, <laughs> and make wholesale inventory. <laughs> right, yeah, exactly, exactly. So the business sort of started itself that night. I just started selling this to shops, and that went on from there. And um, I I became a little bit of a knitting celebrity. I was on some knitting television show. Oh, nice. <laughs> And that was fun, and I was in some knitting pattern books. And then um, I thought to myself at some point, "Gosh, I've gotten what, what has what has happened? I've gotten so far away from from drawing and being an artist, which is had been clear to me that that's what I wanted ever since I was a little kid." So I. It's funny about that pull, right? Mm. It's funny about that little that 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 dream returns or something, and then you. Sometimes turn turn from something that's going on to refine it. I think it's true. It's true. And for me, I had I had been re- doing this business, and and then I had I started working for Crystal Palace Yarns, a yarn distributor, and was designing patterns for them that featured their yarns, and loved working them. But slowly, it was just you know one inch at a time. I was getting further and further from the creative process. Oh uh, yeah. And, and then uh, um I and then I went to Burning Man for the first time. And I have to say it 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 lit up something in me or it flipped some switch that mm. uh, when I went back to work the week after Burning Man I was sitting in the office in the in the knitting uh in the office at the knitting place and I was looking out the window and suddenly I thought what has happened? Mm. I so far away from drawing and I know that I've always known that I've had this there's something some special connection about the way I feel when I draw so I I stood up from my desk and went over to a, a computer that had internet it sort of dates the story mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and um and basically applied for to go to grad school so I went to, I eventually went to San Francisco Art Institute to get my MFA. And then while I was there, the next year, I went back to Burning Man, and that is where I met Christopher Fueling, who was the other founder of the Art Monastery. And it was at Burning Man that we started having this conversation about what would happen if 
if you put a bunch of artists in a monastery. Well, when you look at uh, when you look at a graduate school layout, usually the studios are all little cells, things like that. Mm-hmm. Like artists, all yes. they, they tend to cluster and yet keep separate at the same time. Yeah, you'll find artists in the same sort of neighborhoods and occupying a building, but everybody in their own little space. So it, there's some something in the nature of the creative person that needs a community, but also needs a lot of alone time, don't you think? Yes, absolutely. I, I think it's funny, particularly for painters and for visual artists, there's this idea of the lone painter or the solo artist. And I think that can be confusing for people if, you know, if we really identify like, oh, no, I need to be alone so that I can work and I need to be uninterrupted. But the fact is that the the sangha, the yeah. having having a group of people who get it and can look at your work and offer real critical feedback and can just commiserate <laughs> or even yeah. just just uh, just be together and know that there's there's not the question of the room of you know why don't you have a real job or who are you that you're you know so what is what, that? or what you're doing is important or what yes. the areas you're exploring haven't been seen or so and so went this far you could go in that direction yeah yep yeah, exactly. The the importance of community in creative practice and in spiritual practice is is so I feel like that's continually unfolding for me, the impact of really having sort yeah, of it's so amazing that you're doing so much work in community. I think that's what the, that's mm-hmm. what's uh, you're you're filling that part of the Venn diagram for me as I see it <laughs> or pointing or pointing out its existence for me because certainly mm-hmm. I've been like in my head in the creativity for so long. Mm-hmm. But then to to know it's important and then to see actually at a certain day and time this is going to happen in the world it's really important. Mhm. So um, you made mention when you were talking about your turn toward graduate school and what you were missing about drawing there. So I want to dive into that just for a few minutes. If you want to, if you could talk a little bit more about that. You said there's a feeling that's there when you're drawing that's, you know, not there at other times. I want to just kind of mm. take a moment if you could open that up. Yeah, I I remember I must have been maybe six or seven years old and I remember being in the family room and drawing with crayons, doing a drawing of a squirrel. (laughs) Mm. And I had just gone, I had somehow gone somewhere while I was drawing. And I remember a moment of kind of pulling back and seeing the drawing and sort of seeing myself drawing and feeling the the waxiness on the paper. Mm. And, And I remember a little kind of, bell dinging and thinking this this is important Hmm. or this is special somehow this is special to me not not that this is that other people don't do this but that this is this is something to notice and say as an adult I have gotten really involved in large-scale labor-intensive detail-oriented pattern-based work which and maybe the easiest way to say is that it's meditative, but I always feel like that's, that that doesn't quite encapsulate it. Uh, because when I'm, when I'm working in this certain, in this way, when I'm able to sort of tap in, then I feel like the drawing or the painting is leading me and mm-hmm. I'm following. And, and that feeling is, it's freeing 
and and um, rejuvenating, I think. Yeah, it's well said. Rejuvenating is a good word. It, it, because you, you leave it with more energy than you brought when you came in, right? Yeah. You feel yeah. alive. And then for me, a good work, when I see it on the wall, is one that gives me back more energy for looking at mm-hmm. it than, than the effort to look. Mm-hmm. That it lifts you somehow. Yes. I think that's yeah. true. Yeah. Is that is that spirit? Is that what you're getting when you are are in samadhi, when you're in deep deep meditation? Mm-hmm. Do you think? I do. I think I think it's it's a connection with something. I do think it's a connection that's something outside of myself and that is I think it's helpful to think of it as as separate, although you know, how separate is anything? Yeah, exactly. No, I <laughs> get that. Not very. Say it's part of you that extends beyond the body, something like that. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's part of why it's rejuvenating is this sense of a kind of energy or spirit or source that's flowing through my physical being, my sort of my energetic being. And it's, yeah, it's lighting up as it goes through. There's something about the, um, I mean, part of the reason I was so excited reading your book was reading your exercises about watching your hand as you're drawing and really just let your hand do it. And that's not how I had been thinking of it, but it really, it was so exciting for me because it resonated so deeply and it felt like a, a really different way of arriving at it. Yeah, what you were just describing about the when you're deep in the flow, the drawing reveals itself rather than you mm. directing. And so I say, like, watch the robot hand and see what it does. Right. <laughs> you know, like there's a, it's going to tell you a story. It's going to the, the, the I'm drawing a lot of times to discover, not to not to um, dictate, mm. you know, mm. I'm, not, I'm not there to say what I see or to make a statement. I'm there to discover what it is that needs to come out. So yes. that's very similar. It's very interesting how similar. Yes. Um, that, that reminds me so much of how much I struggled in, in my earlier paintings and feeling like, oh, the, the right process, like the proper way to approach a work is to have an idea, mm-hmm. have a message, and then execute the, you know, manifest the work that exactly. creates. And, and that always felt, every time I started that way, I would make these really stilted, superficial pieces. And it was super frustrating to me. And it, it, it wasn't until my late twenties, early thirties that I finally gave my, really gave myself permission to just work, to just, right. to let my, to say, oh gosh, I have this, image I, I also do video work and to, to say I have this image of being underwater and looking up at the surface and seeing the sun coming through the water and I just need to make that shot and right. to let it be to have no idea what the piece is actually about but to just go make that shot and then of course that shot turns out differently than what I was picturing and then I get a different shot and then that leads to the next thing and then eventually I sort of look back at the work and say oh that's what it's about. <laughs> yeah, that's the moment. That moment, don't yeah. Let's. That's a really important moment to blow up, which is which is that you're working. Maybe you even have a plan, and then you make that shot, and then it isn't the shot you thought, and then you put it together. Something eventually comes through that is a message or an idea or some in, insight that was really mm-hmm. driving it to sort of at a lower level, driving it and bringing up that image in the beginning mm-hmm. that finally gets revealed. Is that that's an experience you've had? I think. Yes. Yeah. 
Absolutely. Yeah, because when you start with a, when you start with a message, you you already have um, collapsed the meaning to that message. You see, so all of the material aspects and all the spontaneous aspects are in, just in service of that. And then if it if it doesn't get read exactly right, that leads to frustration. Yeah. Or because you take a position. Uh, it's e easy to critique the position because any position can be undermined, and so that leads to frustration. And so I, I found the same thing that it was that it was only when I let go of thinking that I had to say something. And then if you go toward the contemplative side, what happens is in in meditation is that the the I goes away, right? The ego sort of, mm -hmm. and and that's and that's the uh, the analogy for me in the creative process is when you stop trying to say what it is. <laughs> mm -hmm. That's that yes. the solution. And then you just become a spectator part of the flow and you watch, you know, and you do what you can and you get the message. I need the underwater shot and just go and make it. Mm hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And let it be that you're fed. If, again, when you go to the idea of kind of hosting the, mo the muse and the idea that you, you're fed one little like the tail. <laughs> so you have to move toward the try to grab that tail and then, you know. Maybe maybe you get to see the ox later. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, exactly. So at some point, yeah, you get you, and then you get get to participate in in more into it. Yeah, or the or the I think the the idea that that wisdom can be revealed, real real meaning and 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 teachings that match up with historical teachings that you m hadn't heard before can be taught to you or come into your mind on your own investigation by following an intuitive path. It's so, so, mm. it's, so it blows my mind, but it happens. It does happen that you make those discoveries and it sort of has to happen because someone went that path and made those discoveries. And that's the historical path mm. that you're hooking up to. Yes. But it's a confirmation. It becomes some kind of great confirmation when you have an experience and then you can look back in the literature and see, oh, this uh, no self experience is something that's widely mm -hmm. discussed. And yet uh, and yet only by letting go creatively was I able to uh, allow that to come over or understand that. Mm -hmm. I think that's a that's a, a great um, case for, you know, letting go of the inner critic and just following your intuition mm. and making things and because it when i do to workshops that's one of the biggest um things that i have to overcome especially for beginners is just not judging immediately mm. what your mm -hmm. hand, the line your hand makes and not yeah. wondering immediately what it all means you know and just this it's the physicality of it. it's like walking meditation you get into the physicality of the pencil like you were saying you felt the wax of the crayon when you drew that's really mm -hmm. important and there's good evidence to show that when you get involved in the kinesthetic and the visual and more the sensory input and you become just put your attention there that selfing process that inner critic kind of goes away because mm -hmm. you're just in the flow and and the story you told is sort of perfect because it's uh it's those moments in childhood that you go back to often when that because that's the time when you were really free of judgment of what you were doing and you were really mm. attuned to the to the world around you yeah and i don't know if you know the story of the uh the it's told about the buddha when he has left being an ascetic in the woods and he's looking for a new way to begin because he's found the limits of that path that he goes back to a childhood memory of bliss and joy. And he, and he starts his f sort of final trek on that note. Oh, wow. I didn't know that story. It's a, it's a really, it's a really fun oh. story because it, because it connects to that moment. I think when I bring people who haven't drawn in 30 or 40 years or whatever, or even 10 years back to, because it, we come to a point in childhood when uh, maybe it's eight or nine years old when embarrassment and 
self-consciousness gets very strong. We don't like to draw anymore because it doesn't look like something or it's not good. We're yeah. not good at it. And that judgment starts. And I think we've got to go pre that in some way to get back to that energy. Yeah. I think it gets closed off the same way, I think, on the contemplative side. Don't you think in society there's a lot of um, contraction? People sort of, I don't know, we say, oh, I'm not religious. I'm not religious. Mm -hmm. like, like somehow we lump spirituality into a into a, a way of thinking that's either soft-minded or it's you know it's not scientific or it's not mm -hmm. proven, and we shut out a lot of the benefits of just being open to ourselves definitely oh yeah we we work with that a lot i mean i work with that personally <laughs> a lot of of needing to conf confirm and reconfirm that that Practices like sitting meditation make a big difference. And it's, you know, it's, it's tricky because on one hand, I, I resist the idea that, you know, we're, do, you know, the sort of uh, business world orientation toward mindfulness and the idea of, you know, Google running meditation classes on their campus so that their employees yeah. can be more efficient. You know? Yes, exactly. <laughs> it's like, okay, all right, I don't really want to go there. But um, the impact, well, actually, I like to think of the impact is, is enormous and invisible. And we'll never know. Yeah, so a good way to say it. And, and in, in some philosophies, the benefits of doing it might not accrue for, you know, lifetimes. Mm -hmm. Right. <laughs> but it's just, turn, just turning slowly in that direction, you know, and further and further opening and becoming more compassionate and more sensitive and more aware of our connections. It's, I mean, it seems to be one of the most important things we can do these days. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting because, I, you know, I feel like we're we're edging on the ideas of faith and and religion and and those kinds of things and at the art monastery where we do we try to operate in a way that keeps us open to like we try to steer away from jargon or things that will would feel like oh i'm not a buddhist i don't want to go there um and so that we can appeal to people on a totally secular level but also people who are really religious um one of the things we're working with at the art monk retreat is in this idea of hosting the muse is having each participant design a tiny, very simple sort of travel altar that is sort of a piece of fabric that can bundle the whole thing up and be this kind of carrying case and then open up and be this sort of surface with a candle and maybe a, an offering of some kind. And the idea is that you light the candle, maybe you light some incense and you call the muse and that you mm. have this, you design your own little ritual. So it can be totally esoteric and you can go all the way into your religious, whatever appeals to you. Or you could say, I'm doing this ritual in a totally secular way as a way to communicate to my own subconscious and and for me it doesn't matter i don't it's t i feel like it's wonderful to think of it either way or anywhere on that spectrum because it works <laughs> it, that's it it works i know and you say yes i'm this is the scientific method and these are the methods that i'm following because i will trigger my own subconscious mind and it's the it's a placebo in some ways but you have to go through something 
Yeah. It's funny that way. It's, they call it in the in the secret of the golden flower. They call it turning the light around. You have to mm-hmm. go through something where you turn it around and you acknowledge that that's also a way. Do you share the altars? Is that something that people see of each other? You know, we haven't, but that is such a nice idea. But we did happen at the end, at the very end of the Art Monk Retreat. We have, as a part of the lifting of the silence, we have we invite the public and people who want to share. There's there's no pressure to share, but. Um, Anyone who wants to share what they've been working on or developing that week can. And we do a, a little bit of a concert because we, we, we sing, we chant and do some singing every morning and every evening. So we present that music and then, and then we have a variety of different, um, sharings of the fruits of the week and people, at least in the most recent one, um, people did one, at least one or two people put their altars out with their work, which is really nice. Yeah, that's nice. It's nice. It's funny how we have to find ways to acknowledge that, acknowledge spirit or acknowledge the connection, deeper connection or the, or the nonverbal connections. Mm-hmm. But it's it's always uh, so vulnerable uh, when you're an artist. I mean, you're open and you're always so vulnerable when you sh- show a piece at all. If it's not anything but a painting of a of a still life, because, mm-hmm. you know, you open yourself to judgment, your own judgment and that of others and the comparison to history. And this. so it's already such a vulnerable moment when you open mm-hmm. it and mm-hmm. to really open further and say, OK, you can really have a look inside and see what's happening there it seems seems brave but also really interesting to look at others yeah yeah and and for art making it it is i think it's an essential part of the process the actual sharing yeah i totally agree i think so and and um sharing with someone trusted like you were saying who's Mm. somewhere along the path who can uh, help you navigate and then sharing in a sort of much more wide open way I think there's a kind of change. There's a, certainly for me, there's a change in me and, the, and maybe there's a change in the work or just the way I see it or maybe that's my imagination when other people have seen a work, not just me. Mm. Yeah. You might have that feeling as well. It's like once once it's seen, I rarely do more to it, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. Me too, for sure. But it changes the way I see it. It changes the way I see it as well, especially in feedback. And, mm. and we know we know from our whatever critique classes and such that people are often going to say about a piece what it is that they would have done, <laughs> why why it's not their work. So you get, I mean, you're the community you choose and the people you're around often has a great influence on the way you proceed. Mm. So um, there's also another thought about that openness that I had, which is that there's a similar openness in um, opening to um, an aesthetic value and even looking at a work and appreciating an artwork. And the way we um, receive, say, uh, dharmic teachings or the way we go into meditation. Do you think there's a similarity to that opening? Oh, interesting. Yes, definitely. I I have been living at Green Gulch Farm, Green Dragons, and Temple, north of San Francisco. And the for so, for the first almost a year that I lived here, I just felt really perplexed by particularly by the chants that we would do in service. And, and I kept saying to people, it's beautiful poetry, but what 
is it? <laughs> what is it even about? You know, and people would say, oh, no, no, don't, don't, don't try thinking about it with your brain. <laughs> That's not going to work. Just, just leave it. And this sort of consistent response I got from people was just keep doing the chants and then one day it'll hit you. <laughs> and when I started thinking about it, like, like abstract visual work, then that helped mm. me so much just mm. to just say like, okay, I'm just going to open to this and relate to it, to it in a way that might be impossible to explain. Yeah. Beautiful. It, it, it was amazing how much that affected how, how relaxed I was. And I think actually relaxing is also a fundamental, super important step in, in the spiritual path and in, yeah, creative creative process exactly. We can't we can't be open if we're not relaxed, right? Exactly. We're contracted if we're not relaxed. Yeah, exactly. It's a, it's, a, it's a great thing. Yeah, the relationship of the two, I think, for me, is the subject of a lot of thought right now. Mm. And that somehow they're they're similar. I see them as similar, but I never I don't see them as the same. And I'm interested in how they sort of weave in and out of each other. Or I'm creating and I get tight, and then mm-hmm. I use a little mindfulness, and then that pulls me back, and then I can relax again. Mm. And then I'm and then I'm off onto sort of uh, meditative path, and then I'm getting a little weary or tiresome, and then I go back into the discovery parts of the creativity, and I get energized. Mm. Somehow they seem to feed back to each other in a nice way. Yeah. Um, so we've talked for a bit. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want to I don't want to go too long, but I want to give you a chance to say if you want to say anything else or promote anything else, or if you have other um, topics that oh, you've great. thought of. Thank you. Um, yeah, I w- could tell you a little bit about the um, the Art Monastic Laboratory, which okay. is a- another one of our big, it's, in some ways it's our biggest program, and is very, where the Art Monk Retreat is more on the, um, more sitting on the contemplation pillar, the the Art Monastic Laboratory is, more on the community and creativity side, really the community side. Um, but we run it as a two-month or a three-month program. This year it's a two-month program. And the idea is that we make a performance-based piece, an original devised work. We work with a particular theme because we have a eight-year cycle that we call the Art Monastic Cycle that follows the Liturgy of the Hours for traditional monasteries, for Christian monasteries. Um, so we take themes and we apply, but we we apply those themes to a whole year, and and we say, okay, so this year we're working with None. It's the ninth hour after dawn, which is 3 p.m., and it's about the devilish midday sun and the descent into hell and and this kind of um, closing of the day, uh, the closing of the work day. So you're tired and um, you've been in the fields all day. Uh, so, okay, so that's our theme. We we're going to make a piece. We need three performers, so we put out a call for art monks. And then the the team gathers so somewhere. It's ranged between eight and twenty one, which was too many <laughs> people. <laughs> and everyone arrives on day one and stays till the end of the program. And we spend the first part of the summer creating the show, and the second half of the summer performing the show, touring it, and. 
we spend the whole time living in this sort of art monastic schedule where we get up in the morning, we meditate, we do physical and vocal training together, we have rehearsal, we all cook and clean together, and um, we just continue. It's a, it's a much longer process, and everyone is working toward the same goal. Mm-hmm. Um, this year, we'll, we'll also have simultaneous artists-in-residence um, so that people can be coming, artists-in-residence can come and participate in any part of the schedule that they want to, but they're working on their own work. And we found that to be just so great to have running in tandem because we have fresh eyes and fresh conversations like, at dinner. and like a new uh, battery pack. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and also it's so great every time someone new comes, they're sort of refresh us on like oh it's so beautiful here wow you swim in the river every day right. oh yeah we do they, thanks they make hey. you they make you uh, uh tell them the whole story of what you're doing so it gets all back in your mind again exactly focus and yeah. when, when will this one take place so that one is is running june to august and um and actually we still have our call for for art monks open right now so um we're looking for performers, and we're going to work with themes of Americana. So we're looking for maybe a banjo player. Or, um, mm. Yeah, the piece will be called Bootstraps. And and what else? I'm very excited. We're starting a new a new idea this year, which is that we're we're going to do Tangario, which is a ancient Zen practice where mm. the where newcomers to the monastery would sit in the Tanga Rio is it literally means waiting room or arrival room. But in the well in the stories, in the old Zen stories, which of course I love, the the new student and the new monk would arrive and say, Please, I want to study here and they would say, No, go away, we're full and and then they'd, the student <laughs> would inevitably say, No, no, I'll stay, I'll sit outside the gates, you know? And right. then the older monks would come and throw water on them and <laughs> go away. And and eventually some unknown amount of time later they would let them in. Or maybe they wouldn't. But so this was the practice of Tangario is to come and you sit uh, I mean, nowadays people sit in the zendo, but it's un, um, for unmarked periods of time. So you all come in the morning and then you stop for meals. But the idea is that you're just in sitting meditation. You get up to go to the bathroom, you go right back to sitting. Hmm. And I did this here at Green Gulch. We did two days of Tangario and it was fascinating for me because I've done many meditation retreats, but hadn't sat for four hours for for a four-hour session and and i found it of course challenging but but really fascinating also because you pretty quickly come up on the question what am i doing here (laughs) do i really want to be doing this and i love the idea of of starting the lab together in silence and that we would all be sitting and sort of wrestling with our own, because there's also the level of you're wrestling with your own. Can I sit here? Can I, should I pretend that I have to go to the bathroom so I can get up and stretch? Right. And you, you have to face yourself um, when you're sitting oh, yeah. long together. So, so we're going to start with a few days. And the whole, the right. whole group, uh, the whole group is um, 
also trying to be admitted to the muse there, something like that, to be, uh, undertake the work. Yes. Oh, yes. I love that idea. We're, we're sitting like, here we are, muse. <laughs> Take us in. <laughs> we're serious. <laughs> <laughs> we want to put this show on. <laughs> yeah. Beautiful. I love I love all the projects. I love all you're doing. I think it's really great, and it's, re- it's been really great to t- speak with you. It's so yeah. great to speak with you too. Thanks so I much for having me. Appreciate your time, and uh, and I hope we can um, continue our dialogue. And uh, well, I won't keep you longer. I'm really thankful for your time, and let's keep, let's keep the energy moving between the uh, the drawing your own path and the art monk community. Yes, definitely. So thank you, thank you, Betsy. Yes, thank you so much. Alright, so that was our interview. Thank you for listening. The lovely background music you're hearing is the wonderful Louis Armstrong and his Hot Fives from 1929, a tune called Muggles with the great Earl Hines on piano. Going back to my roots, my Louisiana roots, to listen to a little jazz. Something that makes me happy. I hope you enjoyed this, and I hope you'll, like me, look forward to some more. Again, let me hear from you through Facebook, Drawing Your Own Path, or writing to me at jfsjr at drawingyourownpath.com, or just go to drawingyourownpath.com website. You'll find it all there. Thank you once again, and uh, hope to interact with you online and draw together on our Tuesday night drawing bee, please take care.